Mark chapter 15. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. Last week we ended chapter 14, and we ended with these words, speaking of Peter. And when he thought about it, he wept. So verse 1, chapter 15, immediately, in the morning, the chief priest held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, that would be the whole Sanhedrin, and they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. Then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he, Jesus, answered and said to him, It is as you say. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, Do you, do you answer nothing, seeing how many things they testify against you? But Jesus still answered nothing, so Pilate marveled. And Father, we pray that as we look at, not all of it today, but we call it your passion, the um, crucifixion, the scourging, the suffering, the physical, the spiritual torment that you had gone through as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world for those who believe in you. We pray, Father, that we would never move to a place where these truths do not move us, especially us, your people. So would you teach us, Lord, would you give us life application, we ask, in Jesus' name, amen. You know, I mention it quite often, and it's worth noting that, you know, if all we had was one gospel account, we would we'd get a clear picture of what took place uh, leading up to the arrest and crucifixion of, of Jesus. But well, we're blessed, not only having one uh, gospel account, but we have four gospel accounts. And all four gospel writers give us details, and, and some of the details are similar, but some are unique to that gospel writer concerning the sufferings of Christ. And so, as we saw last week, Jesus was arrested. He was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He'd gone there to pray. He uh, told his disciples before they even left the upper room that that uh, they that night would all scatter from him. They'd all depart from him. And of course, all of that happened just as Jesus said it would. Uh, he told Peter on that same night, you know, when Peter said, hey, maybe they'll depart, but not me. I'll die with you, you know. And uh, Jesus had told Peter, you know, Peter, you're going to deny that you even know me three times. And, um, and so we saw the conclusion of that last week. Peter did the very thing that he swore that he, he, he thought sincerely he would never do. And he did it. And then, as we saw, when he thought about it, he wept. And we looked at that last week, how that word wept, it doesn't mean a silent crying. You know, he didn't find some secluded corner to kind of quietly, you know, shed some tears. But it literally means a wailing, a loud wailing. And so we see that word familiar to Mark's gospel account, and that is that word immediately. How many times have we seen that word? Immediately, it's a very fast-moving gospel account, immediately, in the morning. So you have the chief priests, you have the, the, uh, the elders, you have the scribes, you have the whole council, so the 70 members of the Sanhedrin. And now they're trying to legitimize what they did that was not legitimate. Remember, they had a trial for Jesus, against Jesus at night, and they couldn't do that. And so now it's morning, daylight, and so now they want to conclude or make it official, you know, silent this dotted line. We, we all agreed on this last night. Yes, yes, yes. Well, let's do it in the daytime, you know. And then they deliver him to Pilate. And of course, again, it's very fast moving. He comes to Pilate, and uh, Pilate asked him the question. The question was a simple question. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered. You'll note that, that he answered. In fact, last week we saw the same thing. When the religious leaders asked Jesus if he was the Messiah, he answered, yes, I am. So he doesn't deny the fact. He's not skirting around. He gives a direct answer to a direct question that's pertinent. But then we also see that those who came bringing false testimony and accusations against Jesus, that he answered not a word. So here's the first bit of application that I personally draw from this, is sometimes it's better to keep your mouth shut than defend yourself. 
Have you ever been caught up trying to defend yourself? I did not do that. I was not there. I didn't, you know. And it, it's almost like you're just digging yourself deeper and deeper and deeper. And Jesus, he just didn't even, almost didn't even acknowledge the things that they were bringing against him. And then we saw in verse 5 that this caused Pilate to marvel. Guys, everything in the Bible, every word in the scriptures is important because every word is giving us a picture. It's giving us a clear, clear picture of what was taking place at the time. Pilate marveled. Why did he marvel? Because Jesus wasn't acting like other condemned men. Usually, no doubt, there would be men that would be brought before Pilate to be crucified and they would grovel and they would fall on the floor and they'd probably grab hold of his feet and say, oh, please have mercy on me. I'm not guilty of these things. And Jesus doesn't do any of that. He just simply stands his ground. And this caused Pilate to marvel. Jesus was all in for us. I want, I want you to remember that as we go through this. Now, verse 6, it says, Now at the feast, remember it's a feast of Passover and unleavened bread. At the feast, he, the heather as Pilate, was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whomever they requested, that is the Jews. And there was one named Barabbas who was chained. So you've got to picture this guy. He's chained with his fellow rebels. And they had committed murder. So it's not a hearsay. I mean, it's a clear... Cut and dry case, you know, they had committed murder in the rebellion. Then the multitude cried aloud, began to ask him, ask Pilate, to do just as he always done for them. But Pilate answered, saying, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew, look at this, for he knew that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. Guys, I point this out every time we look at this portion of scripture, and I think it's worth pointing out because of the irony. Bar Abbas. Bar. Do you know what bar means? Bar means son. Bar. Whenever you see that bar uh, in, in front of a name or something, you know that it's, it means son. And then Abbas, Abba, Abba, son of the father. So his name is Son of the Father. But Matthew tells us that actually his name was Jesus, Son of the Father. So, the irony. I mean, this is amazing. You have a known murderer, a rebel. He's chained with his comrades. He's guilty of sin. His name is, ironically, Jesus, which I mentioned many times, and you know this, as Bible students, that Jesus was a very, very common name. And, and sometimes we get so wrapped up in the name Jesus, but we need to understand it was a very, very common name. There were probably many people named Jesus. In fact, we have a few of them in the New Testament that were named Jesus. But Jesus, very common name. That Jesus, you have Jesus, who his title, of course, a description of him, Jesus, our Lord, is the son of the Father, Father God, you have the choice. Jesus, the sinless one, the son of the father. Now, his name wasn't Bar Abbas. It was just Jesus. Christ is a title. It's not a last name. Um, or you have this criminal. And, of course, who do they cry out for? Verse 11, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd so that they, uh, so that he should rather release Barabbas to them. And Pilate answered and said to them again, what then do you want me to do with him, speaking of Jesus, whom you call the king of the Jews? So they cried out, crucify him. It's amazing when you look at this, their hatred. They would rather have a known criminal well, it reminds me of the days in which we live. I mean, we're releasing criminals like crazy, aren't we? You know, we want to lock up what seem to be the good guys. If there are any good guys, surely not good guys in relationship to Jesus. Jesus was without sin. But they chose him and were told why because of envy. They handed him over to Pilate because of envy. You wonder, why did they go to Pilate? 
Guys, we need to understand the, the drama that was behind all of this because, you know, the Romans were there. They were occupying the land. The Jews didn't want them there. The Romans didn't want to be there. These Romans, for the men and women that are in the military, in the Navy, in our town, Navy are a few Marines. I think we still have Marines on the base here. But anyway, you get deployed someplace. I don't think that's old happy days when you get deployed. It's a drag. You have to go to a foreign land or on a ship, that would probably be worse. But when you go to a foreign land and you're there and you don't want to be there, that's not your home. Well, that's what they were dealing with. They're in Israel. They're in Judah. They don't want to be there. Pilate's there. Pilate's there not because he's a good guy. Pilate's there because he's gotten into some trouble with Caesar. And so he gets this lame duty, Judah. And he doesn't want to be there. And now he's caught in this drama. And why is he brought into it? Because the Jewish religious leaders had zero authority under the Roman occupation to carry out capital punishment on anybody. And if they did have the right, which they did not have the right, they would have stoned Jesus. They wouldn't have crucified Jesus. Now, remember, we know in the scriptures in the book of Acts, for example, that there were times that the Jews, the Jewish religious leaders, would ignore the sanction. And they would go ahead and kill somebody like they did Stephen. They didn't have any legal right to do that, but they went ahead and did it. And apparently they got away with it, maybe with the slap on the hand, because again... Rome doesn't care. You guys want to kill each other? Idiots, go ahead. The less of you, the better for us. It makes our term of duty easier. You can kind of imagine, you can kind of picture the drama here. Pilate, he knows that they've handed Jesus over because they're envious of him. Can you, can you imagine? Envy is such a sin that, that it, it creates the seeds of murder in the heart. I wish they were dead. I wish they were gone. It's like, what has he done? How is he in competition with you? And of course, they saw Jesus as being in competition with them. You know why? Because they were hypocrites. And they had gotten along for a long time. They'd gotten by, by their rhetoric and their traditions and their you know, slogans and everything else, and no one called them on it because there was no standard. There, there was no uh, comparison, if you will. Then Jesus comes upon the scene, and all of a sudden he's speaking words of life, and people are saying, why in the world would we want to listen to the scribe or this Pharisee or this Sadducee or these men? Why would we listen to them when it's the same thing over and over and over again? And they started going out to Jesus. And we know that many, even within the leadership had gone after Jesus as well. Nicodemus, when he met with Jesus that night, remember, he says, we know you are from God. He came alone, but he was speaking for others. They were questioning, they were wondering, could this be, could this possibly be the Messiah? Well, anyway, Pilate, he asked the question again, what do you want me to do? And, and the religious leader had stirred up the crowd to cry out, crucify him. Verse 14, then Pilate said to them, why, what has he done? What has he done? What wrong has he done? In fact, we're told that uh, when Pilate was on the throne, when he was making the judgment, Matthew's gospel tells us, and when he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him saying, have nothing to do with that, with that just or righteous man. For I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Luke's gospel tells us that Pilate said, I found no fault in the man. I've examined. I don't find any fault with him. What's your problem with him? What wrong has he done? What horrible thing has he done worthy of death? But they were persistent. But they cried out all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, no, oh, look at this. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Boy, that's telling. It tells us that Pilate was really a puppet. 
I mean, he, he wasn't a man with a backbone. He wasn't a man with conviction. I mean, Pilate, you just said I find no fault in him. There's, I don't see anything worthy of death or punishment. But wanting to gratify the crowd. That really jumped out at me because we live in an age where people are constantly trying to gratify the crowd. Most churches, from the pulpit, it's an attempt to gratify people from, or gratify the crowd, to gratify people. I mentioned to the first service that, um, you know, (laughs) a man should not be in the pulpit teaching God's word if he cares more about what the people think or feel than what God says. And it's true. Because the man who's in a pulpit proclaiming things that God did not speak or watering down the things that God did speak is no different than the false prophets that we see in the Old Testament. We're going through Jeremiah. Last Wednesday, we started the first two chapters, did the first two chapters, and and I just am really enjoying reading through Jeremiah, and I have been for the past year, uh, just seeing how God brings the legitimate to the children of Israel, to the people of Judah, and he sends them the message, and yet there were all these false prophets, and... Uh, and God even told Jeremiah before he sent him. He says, listen, uh, don't be afraid of their faces. They're going to frighten you. Don't be afraid of their threats. They're going to attack you. And Jeremiah, try not to be too discouraged because they're not going to listen to you. You almost wonder if Jeremiah was thinking to himself, then why in the world are you sending me? I mean, this is like mission impossible. And I would suggest that the reason God does that is because he wants to make sure that man has no excuse. We didn't know. No one told us that this was wrong. No one, no one warned us about these. Oh, yes, yes, I sent my men. They came. They spoke. You did not heed their warning. As we saw last week in Jeremiah, you brought this upon yourself. You did this to yourself. And this is the age in which we live. I told you I saw a fellow, I I didn't know him real well. We've known him uh, for quite a while because we've lived on the island here. And they've been here for probably as long as we've been here in ministry. He was retiring from a church he had pastored for a few decades. And he says, so where are you? And I said, well, I'm still at Calvary Chapel. And most people say, Calvary Chapel? Is there a Calvary Chapel? I mean, we leave such an impression on people. I'm being funny. Yes, there's a Calvary. And he said, uh, are the people happy at your church? And I said, I don't ask the people if they're happy. I could care less if people are happy. That sounds so arrogant, doesn't it? But you've got to consider the fact that the Lord says, not, let not many of you become teachers, for they will undergo a stricter judgment. So one day I will stand before the Lord, and you know I don't want him to say, you know what, Danny, you really watered down this, and you really, you know, you touch lightly on that doctrine, and, and you didn't warn the people about these things and those things. And, and, and man, I want to say, you know what, Lord, I... Faithfully, I wanted to faithfully teach your word. I didn't necessarily, because I'm a human being, always articulate things the way they should have been articulated. But I want to, I want to be faithful to teach your word. So you either have a fear of God or you have a fear of man. If you have a fear of man, then you'll do things out of envy and you'll do things to gratify the masses. I saw it first thing this morning. One of these prosperity teachers, Dollar, he had a politician, a Democrat, Democratic politician in his church. You know, she ran for governor in Georgia last time. I think she thinks she is the governor of Georgia. But her stance on the sanctity of life, she wants to see children aborted after birth. She wants to see children put to death after birth. 
And this pastor welcomed her in his church, acted like he was surprised that she walked into the church. The whole thing, obviously. He knew she was coming in. And he said to the congregation, you know, we have so-and-so here. And the congregation just applauded, you know. And I think, what are you doing? Are you applauding because, are you applauding for a race? Are you applauding, are you applauding for what's right? And then he says, you know what to do. How many of you have done it already? He's referring to voting. And a bunch of them, he goes, wow, a lot of you have already. And I think, oh, man, you are trying to gratify the masses. You know the hearts of your stiff-necked, lukewarm people, and you're speaking to their low standards. And one day you'll stand before the Lord and give an account for those. I'll tell you, this doesn't apply just to teachers, Bible teachers. It applies to all of us as Christians. You either fear God or you fear man. You fear man, you're going to give in to peer pressure. You fear man, you're going to water down what you say you believe. You you fear man, well, you're just going to blend. You're going to become that chameleon. When you're with them, you're going to act like them. When you're not around them, you're going to act differently. There has to be convictions. There has to be a good, healthy fear of God. Well, the people cried out, crucify him. And so he scourged Jesus. And and it just simply says he scourged Jesus. And and that's how the gospel writers, you know, record it, that they scourged Jesus. It's almost as if they felt that they had no need to explain what scourging was all about, how graphic it was. And and, and so we need help. And, of course, we, we can read about the horrors of scourging. We know that there were some that were scourged to death. Some of them were never crucified because they were scourged to death. They lost so much blood. Their body went into shock. They would have stress-induced heart attacks. Some people didn't even make it through, some men didn't even make it through the scourging to get to the place of crucifixion. But he just doesn't even touch on it. He just kind of says, well, he scourged them and prepared him for crucifixion verse 16 then the soldiers led him away into the hall called praetorium and they called together the whole garrison but that would be intimidating if it was anyone other than jesus i would surely be intimidated picture all these roman soldiers i could almost smell them in my imagination you know body odor sweat they're 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 there they don't want to be there just another Jew that we have to deal with as they spit on him. I mean, you, you just see the contempt that they have. They don't know Jesus. You know, in one sense, guys, it's not personal toward Jesus. I think they would treat any Jewish man this way. But of course, this wasn't just any Jewish man. And they clothed him with purple and twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him and bowed the knee, and they worshipped him mockingly. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple uh, off him uh, and, and put on his own clothes and led him to be crucified. You know, you could go to the place in Israel where you could see where they did these things, the pavement they would actually carve games into the stones there and you could actually see those stones uh, to this very day they're preserved there in Israel in Jerusalem and um, for them you know this was just another form of entertainment for us it's disturbing because this is our Lord see it's almost a test it's like a spiritual test Do these things move me? Do these things bother me? Do these things make me sad? You know, is the spiritual meter going up because you have a relationship with them, with him, with the Lord, you know? And so for you, it's it's a personal thing. For you, you're thinking, oh boy, Jesus was all in for me. Jesus did this for me. Jesus was the lamb. He was like the lamb. He was a man, but he was like a, a lamb slaughtered for my sins. 
And oh, I can't believe this. Jesus, Jesus. I'm like Bar. I'm like the criminal. I'm like the son of the father, not the heavenly father. Barabbas. I'm like Barabbas. I'm guilty. I'm the murderer. I'm deserving death. I'm deserving scourging. I'm deserving crucifixion. And I walk free. And he takes my place. And here we see another type within these events that were taking place. The guilty goes free. And that's true if you've placed your faith in Christ. It doesn't seem fair. It's not fair. But, you know, when you're talking about salvation, when you're talking about redemption, the work of redemption, there's nothing fair about it. (laughs) The Lord's not dealing with fair things. This is his grace. This is his mercy. You know, guys, I mention it quite often when I teach because I think that there are many Christians that are weak spiritually because they're not in the word because our faith is built by being in the word of God. And people are not in the word because they don't have a love for the word. And they don't have a love for the word because either they're not born again, so the spirit of God is not taking the word of God and and giving illumination to it, or they're just not giving time to the study of the scriptures. Guys, there are so many things we see in the scriptures. You know, we see the prophecies. We see the fact that David, in Psalm 22, uh, prophetically writing about the crucifixion of Jesus because David never experienced these things, but he says, for dogs have surrounded me. There's no indication from the gospel writers. I mean, there's no picture of of them shooing dogs away. Maybe there were real dogs there, but most likely it was a picture of the Gentiles that were there, the Romans that were there, because it was a derogatory term for Gentiles. That's what the Jews would refer to the Gentiles as dogs. And the scripture goes on, the congregation of the wicked, I think of the Roman soldiers, they surely would have fallen into that category. But so would the spiritual leaders of Israel. The wicked has enclosed me. And then, of course, it goes on, that familiar portion of scripture, they pierce my hands and my feet, I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and uh, for my clothing they cast lots. This is amazing. This was written how long? A thousand years? Longer? Before the incarnation? Before Christ came on the earth? Before these events that we're reading about happened? The thorn. You know, we have that up there. It's one of the favorite things. It's a real crown of thorns. I mean, you touch it and you'll get, uh, you'll bleed (laughs) because it's sharp. I love it. But you know what that means. Do you know what that is telling us? Do you think that's just a random thing, guys? Do you think, oh, they must have had a thorn bush around, and so they decided to do that? Guys, there is a picture. It's like Father God has painted this beautiful picture for those who would open their eyes and look of redemption, the crown of thorns. Where do we first see thorns mentioned? In the Bible. Do you know there's this rule of first mention in the Bible? And you want to note that. First mentioned. You know the very first time that love is mentioned in the Bible? It speaks of the love that a father has for his son, Abraham and Isaac. Did you know that? Did you know the second time the word love is used in the Bible? It speaks of the love of a husband for his bride, the love of Isaac for his... You know, this, this is important. But thorns and thistles, remember that? Part of the curse, that was a sign, that was a symbol of the curse. Sin has entered into the world, and now you have this thing that you did not have before, thorns and thistles. And so Jesus is bearing upon his brow as they're mocking him. They don't know this. They're not doing this. They're not saying, hey, this would really be cool, spiritually speaking. They're just simply doing these things. But it's a picture of of the Lord Jesus bearing the curse. You say, oh, that, you you know, you're trying to connect dots that don't get, 
Guys, in the same chapter, Jesus is spoken about. The seed of the woman is spoken about. Jesus is spoken about. The remedy for, for sin coming into the world and contaminating all of mankind, the remedy is there. He's revealed right there in the same chapter, and you've barely cracked the Bible open. It's beautiful. There are so many things that if we would only take the time to read, we would be so blessed. Well, they spat on him, and they did this, and they took him to crucify him. And, and verse 21 says, And they compelled a certain man, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. We know Rufus is mentioned in um, the closing of Paul's letter to the Romans. Did you know that? So this had an impact upon him, little Rufus. We don't know how old these boys were, but they were there with their dad. They were there as Passover pilgrims. They were there. They were a long ways from home because home for them was North Africa. They were about 800 miles from home. They come there for Passover. What do you think Simon knew about Jesus? Probably nothing. Probably what was told him, you know, as he's, as he's taking this, this, this cross beam of the, of the cross and he's putting it on his shoulders and he's now bearing the cross beam of the, of the cross for, for the stranger to him. Maybe some said, yeah, he, he claims to be the king of the Jews. And maybe others said, he is the king of the Jews. He's the Messiah. This is wrong what they're doing. Maybe some said, Simon, you're cursed having to carry his cross. Maybe others said, Simon, you're blessed getting to carry his cross. Do you know that uh, many times, you know, we kind of draw our own conclusions about things based upon what we see in films, And so typically what we see is Jesus carrying a cross, you know, the full cross. You've got the post that goes down into the ground and you've got the cross beam, of course, and and they're dragging the cross through the streets. And the cross, if it was together like that, would be 300 plus pounds. So, you know, you could be a real buff guy and still not be able to drag a 300 pound cross full, fully connected cross through the streets of Jerusalem, especially after being scourged. You would be weakened. You've suffered a lot of blood loss. You're dehydrated. They would carry the cross beam. The cross beam would be anywhere from 75 pounds, maybe 125 pounds, somewhere in there. That would still be heavy after being scourged. And they would typically take the cross beam and they would tie the wrist onto the cross beam and laid across the shoulders and the crucified uh, victim would then walk naked through the streets of Jerusalem on his way to Golgotha. I say his because they never crucified women. This is something they did to men. And so, of course, we know that Jesus began to carry the cross, uh, the, the cross beam, you know, and then Because of exhaustion, you know, they called this man, and he ends up carrying it the distance. Do you ever stop, guys, when you read the scriptures? Do you ever think, those of you that have children, you know, I think we've had our five little ones. I have my grandchildren with me at different times. and, And when you have little children with you, you're always watching them. You're always watching them. And I just think of Simon, you know, he's got, he's now tied onto this cross beam and he's trying to walk and they're not beating him because he hasn't done anything. He's not dying on the cross. He's just simply being a, you know, an instrument to get the cross beam to the, the location. And I imagine this man looking around saying, Rufus, you know, grab your brother's hand. Keep up, keep up, stay with me, stay with me. I mean, you've got the hustle and bustle and all these people and people jeering and saying, crucify him, crucify him, and spitting at Jesus as he's walking by. And you're walking in close, uh, you know, 
parameters to him because you're carrying his cross beam. And you're listening, you're watching these things, and then you're concerned for your boys, and, and you're you know, making your way to the location, and I just think of the drama of the whole thing. And it says, coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross, and they brought him, that's Jesus, to Golgotha, to a place called Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. It's interesting, Golgotha. You go to Israel today, and you know, Israel, if you ever get a chance to go to Israel, go to Israel, it's fantastic. But don't become disillusioned because there's a lot of hokey stuff there too. I mean, there are churches built in locations and this happened here and that happened there. So you might go to Israel, depending upon who you go with, you might go to Israel and you'll go to a church and you'll go into the church and you'll say, this is the church of the Holy Sepulchre. This is where Jesus was, was uh, crucified. And you'll kind of look around and think, well, you know, where's the hill? And where's the, you know, that just kind of doesn't seem to fit the mode. Or you'll go to another location, which is called Gordon's uh, Calvary. And, and you'll go into a garden there, and there's a tomb, of course, and that's where they believe that they had laid the body of Jesus. And uh, it's, it's a location where, as you're there walking around this beautifully manicured garden, uh, you're smelling the diesel fuel from the bus station that's right below it. It's loud. It's, you know, hectic. And, and you look across at the wall of the old city of Jerusalem. Now, it's not the same wall that stood there at the time of Christ. It's been rebuilt. These are newer stones. But you can see where they had actually cut the mountain to put a road in. For modern day Jerusalem. And as you look at that, you could see how you could see, well, there's the Temple Mount, because I could see the Dome of the Rock, and Jesus was Jesus was crucified on Mount Moriah. How do we know that? It's the same place where Abraham went to offer Isaac. Guys, connect the dots. The Bible is not boring. The Bible is so exciting. It was the place, Mount Moriah. The place where the Temple Mount is. The same Temple Mount. Now it's been cut. There's a road there. But you have this location. It looks like a skull. The place of a skull. By the way, in Aramaic, it's Golgotha. In English, it's Calvary. This is Skull Chapel. We probably wouldn't have anyone come if we had that name, Skull Chapel. But that's what it means, Skull Chapel. Nate told me something between services. I love it when someone drops stuff like this on me. He said that there is a theory that it is believed when David killed Goliath, Remember what he did with Goliath? Took off his head, that big old fat head. He took that head and he took it into Jerusalem. This is before there was a Jerusalem, Salem. He brings it in and he buries it. And many believe it's the same location, Golgotha, place of the skull, where Goliath's head was buried by David. Man, there's a lot of dots there to connect as well. Jesus is the son of David. I mean, there's so many things. It's going to be so fun to be in heaven and to just see how all of these things tie together. Well, they take Jesus. I want you to picture this for a moment. Oh, you know, I did the same thing last time. There's so much to cover. But Jesus, his back and his body and his legs and everything was opened up from the scourging. Just horrific. Then they take the purple and they lay it upon him and they mock him. Hail, king of the Jews. Guys, I, I think I startled people at the first service because I said, do you know what they did? They said, hail, Jesus. Where do you think Germany got this? 
Look at all the things that Germany had, Nazi Germany. It's Roman. By the way, it's coming back. The revived Roman Empire is on its way back. Pay attention to what's happening in the world, guys. It's intriguing. They offered Jesus some mixed wine, verse 23, and they gave him wine mixed with myrrh to drink. This was like a sedative, just a mild sedative. And when Jesus tasted it, look what it says, he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, fulfilling, of course, Psalm 22, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Again, this gives you the picture of these Romans. They could care less about Jesus. Remember, one of the gospel writers tells us that his garment, his tunic, was, it had no seams. It was really a, a nice tunic, and so they didn't want to tear that. Don't tear that. Let's throw lots for that. And so this was their way to pillage, you know, the, those being condemned to crucifixion. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above King of the Jews. And with him, they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and it's a quote from Isaiah 53, verse 12, And he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocked among themselves with the scribes, said he saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel. I mean, look at, look at the mockery. We saw this in Jeremiah on Wednesday night where God is speaking through Jeremiah the prophet and in essence he's saying, what have I done? What have I done that you would turn against me? What have I done that you would reject me? What have I done? And it's just a sad picture. It's not like God is, you know, crying in a corner or something, but it's just a legitimate, honest question. What has he done? And it's amazing that we live in a culture where people absolutely hate Jesus. Even to this day, it's like, what has he done? And they hate Jesus because they hate that righteous standard. I'll tell you, oh, happy days it will be for them when the Lord comes for his church. For a time, not for very long. But for a time it will be, oh, happy days. And then they'll get what they think they want and all hell will be unleashed upon planet Earth. It's going to be horrific. I hope you've placed your faith in Christ. I hope you've placed your faith in Christ. I'm serious. This is, this is not something to play with. I think young people, they think, you know, they have forever. I know I did. Parents, grandparents, pray for your children. Pray for your grandchildren. Pray fervently for them. They need salvation. Don't assume because they go to church or 13 youth groups. (laughs) Last thing your kid needs is youth group. What your kid needs is a diet of Bible. That's what they need. We're beyond fun and games. We need to feed upon the word of God. You know, as a high school youth worker, junior high, high school for six years, and... um, it would break my heart because, and we've seen it here. You know, we've been in one location for a long, long time. And we've watched kids, we've watched kids go through this church as little kids. I asked Jesus into my heart at VBS, oh, praise the Lord, you know, that's wonderful. And we've watched them grow up, and we've watched them go away, turn away, 
and we've watched some just get involved in all sorts of horrible things. We've seen some return to the Lord. Praise the Lord for that. But we, we know of others that because of the lifestyle they were living, they died young. We need to take seriously the word of God. Well, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, oh, you who destroyed the temple and built it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Could you imagine if Jesus did that? All would be lost. He was in all the way for us. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes said, Save, you, he saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. And that's the heart of a mocker. I will believe when I see. And Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen, and yet they believe. See, it's not faith if we could see. (laughs) I'll, I'll believe. I'll believe when my parents are gone, because they're always talking about the rapture, you know. I'll believe I'll place my faith in Christ then, and I'll live for Christ. I'll die for Christ. And you sound like a fool. You sound like Peter. If you cannot live for Christ when it's relatively easy to live for Christ, what makes you think that you'll be able to live for Christ when your life, your life will be at jeopardy, in jeopardy every day? There's no way without the power of the Holy Spirit And even those who are crucified with him reviled him. Well, Jesus was in all the way for us. And you know what he wants of us? Now, see, this is where sometimes it breaks down because we say, well, no, 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 no. Listen, Jesus did it all. That's right. Jesus did it all. Jesus says, it is finished. That's right. Jesus finished it. No one could, we could not help out. We could not do anything to add to the redemptive work of Christ. But that does not, not, does not mean that we do not have a responsibility. And this is where Christianity, at least in America, maybe in, in Europe, has been dumbed down. Because we want to distance ourselves from anything that looks like works righteousness. And I would be the first in line if I, was, if I thought I was talking about works righteousness, meaning that somehow I could work my way to salvation. We can't. It's the work of God. But there needs to be a response. See, guys, we have in the church today, we have men like Rob Bell. Rob Bell, he's a universalist. So he would say, well, Christ died for the sins of the world, so therefore the world is saved. And he writes his book, Love Wins, and he says, even Hitler will be saved in the end. He's appealing to the masses. He's trying to gratify the masses. And if people listen to the fool, they will be deceived by his lies. For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever believes in his heart that God raised him from the dead, whoever confesses with his mouth Jesus is Lord, it's a life. It's not, it's not this you know, kind of, I'm just saved because I'm a human being. Things are wrapping up. Remember what Jesus said earlier on in Mark's gospel account? He didn't just, it's not just recorded in Mark's account, but we've looked at it a number of times. Mark chapter 8, Jesus said, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Well, wait a minute, that sounds like we've got to do something. 
For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. When we read that, quite often we we think, okay, it's martyrdom. We have to be willing to die for Christ. Do you know that the majority of us in this room, unless things radically change, will never have to die for Christ. But we lose our life by living for Christ. It's not a death thing. I mean, it is a denying self, and it is kind of a death to self, but it's not a physical death per se. It's living for him, for my sake, and the gospel will save it. For what will it profit a man? You guys come on up for worship, last song. If he gains the whole world and loses his own soul, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me, listen, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, are, do you go to church somewhere? Oh, you know, hey, we're not fanatics about it. You know, it's just good. It's good for the kids to have that exposure, you know. My parents exposed us to that, and I just thought it would be a good idea. Ever, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Jesus is coming back. If we're involved in things we shouldn't be involved in, stop. If you keep defending things, and people do it all the time. Christians do it all the time. You don't know what you're talking about, pastor, you know. I could do a little of this. I could do a little of that. I could practice Eastern, you know, metaphysics or something like that. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It does matter. It does matter. It does matter. It affects you spiritually. And it holds you back from being the man or woman that Christ wants you to be. He was all in for us. We should be all in for him. This is the end of the race. This is, it's over. It's almost over. And we don't want to be those who are clinging on to the foolish things of this world. I refuse to let go. I'm going to let go. Let it go. I hear my granddaughter singing that song in my head. Would you stand with me? Father, help us to let go of the things of this world that are holding us back, Lord Jesus. Would you please give us revelation? I pray for my brothers and sisters that truly are born again, that truly have your spirit within them. I pray that you'd give them a love for your word. I pray, Lord Jesus, sometimes I feel, and I think other Bible teachers feel like you're like, you're like, pushing against a resistance. It's almost like an invisible wall of opposition or resistance. And, and Lord, I, I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would all be people who love your word and study your word and know your word so that when we come together, who knows how many Sundays we have ahead of us before you call us home, but that we might be able to end without this kind of opposition, not from everyone, but from some, that it would be a yea and amen, not because I'm saying it or any pastor or any man or woman is saying it, but because your word has said it. And we're saying amen to what we've seen in your word. We've read it for ourselves. You've given us insight and revelation on it. We know it to be true. Your spirit has taught us these things. And so we say amen. So be it. I agree. That's the word. We pray for that, Lord. I pray for that. In Jesus' name, amen.